And it's good to be with you all today. All right, Brody, uh, let's just get this out of the way. Where you at? Let's get some action shots here. Preaching the word, right? Like that, right? Get that out of the way. Put that on the website. And get some action shots of our people. You don't want to be, now this is, we're going to immortalize you. So you can either be like this, like that. No, you don't want that. Just kind of lean forward. Look like you're engaged. There we go. You got that? Uh, we just, those are the things we got to do in this modern age with websites and pictures and all that. And it's just, I kind of like it, don't like it, to be honest with you. So, um, yeah, there it is. So, I hope you got those action shots. All right. Well, this is our second week in our five-week series entitled, Who Do Christians Think They Are? And as I said last week, it's a series on our identity. And identity is a really important concept because your sense of identity, your identity is what gives you your sense of self. It guides you, it informs you, it grounds you, it comforts you. In a lot of ways, it helps you know who you are and how to navigate in this life. Now, last week was quite a lot, and I said that in part, our identity is made up of three things. Now, this is a series on identity, but I'm not unpacking all the aspects of identity. So I realize there's more that goes into our identity but in part, identity is made up of these three things. Who we feel we actually are, and that's, that's the, um, and I said if you're interested in the philosophy or psychology of these things, who we feel we are, it's kind of like the, the existential reality of how we experience our life. We all are experiencing our lives every day, every moment. A lot of times we're not aware of it, but we always are experiencing things. Even at this moment, you are experiencing sensations. And our identity, this is the subjective aspect of that, is how we are experiencing that, how we feel about who we are. Then there's the actuality. This is what's called the situational reality of who you actually are, right? And the two are not always the same, right? I used an illustration last week of an identity sense that, that I was this powerful, competent presenter professional until I realized that my zipper was down, right? And then I completely felt differently, not because reality had changed, but because my perception of the reality, my experience of the reality from the actuality of it was different. And so reality, our identity is pulled from how we feel about ourselves, who we feel we are, who we actually are. And then there's a third component to it uh, in, in kind of philosophical language. It's ontological. It's, it's, the, it's what you're supposed to be. And so these three aspects make up your sense of identity, among other things, how you feel about who you are, what you actually are, who you actually are, and who you are supposed to be. And last week we spoke about three identities that Christians can assume about themselves that are correct, but they're actually not complete. And so as a result, our understanding of what a Christian is or our, our identity can be uh, distorted, can be incorrect. Last week, the three identities we looked at primarily pulled from the first two aspects of it, who we feel we are and who we actually are. This morning, we're going to be talking about the third aspect of this identity. What are we supposed to be, or who are we supposed to be? And this is really an important question. Whether you are a Christian or not, struggling through these issues of identity and understanding who, you're, who you are, you not only need to ask, how do I feel about who I am, who I actually am, but the really important question, particularly if you have a Christian worldview, is who am I supposed to be? And by way of review, 
I made the case last week that a Christian is not simply uh, someone who's a doctrinalist, right? That they believe that Christianity or what it means to be a Christian is all a matter of facts and theology and, and, and knowledge. I also said that a Christian is not just a pietist, someone who experiences a personal lifestyle change that happens to resemble a Christian sense of morality, right? So, so a Christian is not just a doctrinalist, nor is he or she just a pietist, nor is a Christian simply an activist, someone who wants to see the cultural impact and the values of Christianity shape the society they live in. That's what we talked about last week, and I ended last week by saying that a Christian is not any one of these, but in, in, in fact, a Christian is all of these. You see, a Christian embraces the historic work of Christ. A Christian embraces his or her new identity in Christ. A Christian embraces the reversal of values that the Christian worldview brings through Christ to the world around you. And so when you become a Christian, there is a, 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 a holistic transformation that takes place in you. There is an a, a intellectual cognitive change. It's not that the facts are any different, but that you understand them differently. You perceive them differently. You interpret them and apply them differently. Your worldview begins to shift. You take with you into your worldview, into your world, a worldview, uh, whether it has to do with business or politics or economics or insurance or retirement or leisure, the way you think about reality changes. There is a, a psychological, emotional change. Your identity now is not rooted in people's opinions or the values that ebb and flow over our culture. They're rooted in that you are loved by God and redeemed by him, and you're secure in Christ. So there's a cognition, cognitive change, there's an affective change in our emotions, and there's even a volitional change. You now live out of this reality. So there's a cognitive, an affective, a volitional change. This is what the Bible calls conversion. That there is a real, profound, permanent change in your identity. And it's an identity you ought to pursue, right? It's an identity that we ought to all see that pursuit happening in your life. We talked about 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 15. Paul says, practice these things. What's he referring to? What, what's the these things referring to? Certainly what immediately follows verse 15. But really everything that came in chapters 1 through 4 up to that point. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. Why? So that all may see your progress. You see, where we get into problems is that as Christians, when we kind of adopt or believe that our identity is just one of these three other things to the neglect of the others. And there's some downsides to that. There's some advantages for sure, but there are downsides. If we tend to be just kind of the, the doctrinalists, right, we can get kind of bookish and inward lost in our own thoughts and in our theologies. If we're just the pietist, we can become shallow, right? We can become moralistic. We can become, become very behavioristic. If we're just the activist, we can become angry or self-righteous. We can become bitter at those who don't adopt as their own our causes. And so all of these, while they are important to us, if we just focus on one of those, they have a real downside. And so it's not just any one of these, but imagine if we could maintain all of these. 
And so your mind is pursuing after the knowledge of God because in the knowledge of God, you're learning. In reading his word, you're not only reading and learning about God, you're learning about yourself, you're learning about the world we live in and how all this works together. Right, so Deuteronomy 29, 29, God says that the secret things of God, we talked about this verse in our reflection service, I think, belong to the Lord. In other words, God is infinite. There's so many things we will never know about God, but the things he's revealed to us in his word belong to us, to us and to our children. Why? So that we may know him and obey all that's in his law. Right, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Romans chapter 1. Why, Paul? He says, because it's the power of God to salvation, because in the gospel is revealed a righteousness from God apart from the law, and that righteousness is revealed ultimately in Christ, but through his word as well. Psalm 119, 130, is one of my favorite verses, says, the unfolding of your words brings light, making the simple wise. So as we study, as we get into the doctrine, we learn about God, we learn about ourselves, we learn about this world and how it all works together. But as we understand that, it reflects in our lifestyle. As we are changed to represent that character of God as we are renewed in his image and transformed in righteousness and holiness. That's a Colossians chapter 3.10. Ephesians 4.24 talks about being, putting on the new self that's remade in the image and likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Righteousness there is, is talking about actual actions. Our lives become different. Holiness is talking about uh, our, our action, attitudinal uh, impulse behind those actions. Our lives actually change and transform. And this is what Paul says beautifully in Romans chapter 12. Be transformed. We talked about this as a doctrinalist, right? Be transformed. How do we get transformed? By the knowledge of God. And so we see that the two are intersecting there, right? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then the rest of Romans chapter 12 is this wonderful category of the marks of what a true Christian is. And it's all a transformed lifestyle. So as the knowledge of God permeates us, and we learn about his world and how we relate in it, it changes the way we live personally, but we also move out into the world. Not out of bitterness, not out of demands from others, but really out of, out of hope, out of, out of determination, out of purpose, because we know, as we read in Revelation eleven fifteen, 15, that all the kingdoms of the world are the kingdom of Christ. That's exactly what Abraham Kuyper, the, 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 uh, the, the statesman from the Netherlands, he was a powerful politician. I think it was the late 19th century, early 20th century, radically motivated by his Christian faith. He said, all of creation, every single inch of it, belongs to Christ. And my job is merely to try and reclaim as much of it as I can. And so the doctrine The piety, the activism is all there. But the problem is, how do we all maintain this balance? Because if we're honest and think about it, right, there's you can almost see personality types lining up to this, right? So if you're an introvert, which one do you think you're gonna be? Probably. You you might be the doctrinalist, right? If you're naturally more smart, really bad English there, if you're naturally yeah, if that's where you lean, where are you gonna fall? The, 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 The doctrinalist. If you're an extrovert, where do you think you might lean? More towards the piety or the activism. So how do we maintain what so often seems very polar aspects? That's a good question. It's a question we have to ask. 
I think the answer itself is actually in part of the question. How do we all maintain the balance? It's something we all have to do. This is partly why I ended early last week. I hope you really appreciate it because it's not going to repeat. <laughs> partly, I, the, partly the reason I early, ended early last week was because my last point is really this entire sermon's, sermon this morning. So it's, uh, that's why we had to end a little bit early because I didn't want to go another hour late. The reality is we're not just doctrinalists. We're not just pietists. We're not just activists. And we're not individualists. Being a Christian is so much more than that I am in a, really, a personal relationship with God. We'll talk a little bit about that right now in a, in a little bit. But the reality is when I am a Christian, my identity is I am that. I am in the people of God in Christ. You see, from the very beginning, God has always been calling a people to himself. Not simply a collection of like-minded individuals, but calling a people, an identifiable people group. In the Old Testament, they were originally, you look at the book of Genesis, they were the children of Abraham. They then became known as the Hebrews, the Jews, the Israelites in the monarchical period. A very identifiable people group. In fact, when you read the Old Testament, that's what the big chunk of the beginning is when you read it. It is that God is saying, this is what this national ethnic people group of mine is going to look like and how to live. Friends, if you're a Christian, I wonder if you've ever thought about how just the structure of, of an involved Christian life in a local church, that itself marks you off differently from the world. Take, for example, what you're doing right now. First day of the week, early hours of the day, what are you doing? You are here gathered with other people, singing corporately. Where does that happen in our culture today, other than like karaoke bars, baseball games, and birthday parties? But you gather of your own accord, and you're singing corporately, and you're sitting down listening to somebody thundering on for 30 minutes or an hour or maybe an hour 15 minutes. It's very unusual. What you do with your money, the first of your income, what do you do with that? You, you, you actually give it away every week. Friends, just the way our lives are structured in local church is setting yourself differently from the world around you, just like in the Old Testament. Now, we're not a national ethnic people, so a lot of what we see in the Old Testament has given way because the, the gospel has transcended an ethnicity. It's a whole different people now. So a lot of the external trappings of that have gone away, but a lot more internal realities have taken its place. But my point is, in the Old Testament, the people of God were an identifiable group, the children of Abraham, the Hebrews, the Jews, the Israelites in the New Testament. They are called Christians. All together, the people of God brought together and made one through the work of Jesus Christ. Now, Ephesians 2.14 gets at this, but, but really, Galatians 3.28. So, this is what Paul says to the Ephesians. For he himself, speaking of Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So, what Paul is saying there is really significant, because the whole world was divided, and in that, that ancient time, they all saw it this way too. You had the Jews, and then everyone else. Right? So, so to say the two made one, they were saying now that, that division that was just primarily Jew and everyone else, we're all one. Right? But notice how Paul unpacks that. And by the way, this is the wonderful thing about theology. Uh, 
reading Paul, we've been talking about this in, in Revelation, different perspectives saying the same kind of thing. So here's Paul unpacking a bit more in Galatians 3 what he's hinting at in Ephesians 2. So Paul writes this, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there's no male or female, you're all one in Christ Jesus. Now what Paul is talking about here in Galatians 3.28 is, is, is what he's talking about the, the availability of salvation to all, right? That, that's the point of what he's getting at. But there's so much, there's so many more layers in what Paul says. I just want to be clear that what Galatians 3.28 is saying is that salvation is available to all. There's no pecking order, right? Everyone can have it. What Paul is not saying, however, what Paul is not saying in Galatians 3.28 is that there are no distinctions amongst people, amongst humanity, right? Clearly, Paul recognizes that there's always going to be male and female, right? Paul knows there's always going to be ethnic Jews and ethnic Greeks or whatever else, and Paul knows there's always going to be slaves and, and freedmen and freed women in that culture and society. But notice what Paul is talking about here in these categorizations. He's talking about our ethnicity. He's talking about our socioeconomic status. He's talking about our sexuality. Paul's not saying there are no distinctions, but he's recognizing that there are distinctions, but their ultimate fulfillment do not find themselves in their own selves. In other words, in race, economics, or biology. But all of these distinctions are grounded theologically in Christ. In other words, they have their purposes in God. The reason I bring that up is in our cultural moment, our society can't make sense of the balance between these things. Because all they have is the filter or the lens of their biology or economics or sexuality, but they remove the most important filter, and that is the filter of God's purposes most ultimately seen in Jesus Christ. And we even see this politically, friends. If, if you lean too far to the right, you may be tempted to say, oh, there's no distinctions at all. Why are people always complaining about their ethnicity or their socioeconomic status? None of these things matter, Right? you might make too little of those things. Now, if you lean, happen to lean politically to the left, you make too many, too much of those distinctions. And it's all about ethnicity, it's all about race, it's all about gender, and you can't seem to communicate to each other. So if you happen to be more conservative, you ignore them. If you happen to be more liberal, you make too much of them, and you go back and forth and back and forth. You see, the gospel, friends, is the only thing that can hold these things in our society in a balance. To recognize that these distinctions that are God-given, by the way, fulfill a purpose of the Lord and make sense in His purposes. That's why the last phrase in Galatians 3.28 is so important. For you all, the many, the distinctions, the plurality, are one, the singular unity purpose in Christ. And so whether you're a Greek, male, who's slave, or a Jew, who's free, and female, God has given you distinctions. And you are not to make too much or too little of those distinctions. The way you find the balance is that you are all one in Christ. So let me bring that back into this, our series. If I'm saying I am a Christian, I am saying something so much more than I personally believe in Jesus with all of my individual economic, ethnic, uh, social, uh, financial, gender, sexual distinctions. No, what I'm saying is 
I am someone who has those distinctions by God's plans and purposes, but I'm no longer a person of the world who finds their identity ultimately in those distinctions. I find my identity in that I am in the people of God to fulfill his purposes. So a Christian is a people. It's not just a person. It's not just you. It's a people. And a people that have two purposes or two, two realities. I'm going to say this. A Christian is saved to a people and for a people. Now, I recognize I'm bringing in a word I haven't even defined. The word saved, but I'm, I'm imagining most of you know what I mean by that. If you don't know what I mean by what it means to be saved, you can come talk to me afterwards. But I want to I cash in on the currency. I think you all know what that term means. A Christian is someone, an individual, that is saved to a people and for a people. Okay, all of that was my introduction. Now let's actually get into the sermon. Okay, now that you have those categories, I need you to go in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. If you're going to use our pew Bibles, it's going to be on page 954. 1 Peter chapter 2 or page 954 in our pew Bibles. I'm going to read verses uh, 9 and 10. And we are going to be digging into the word today, so, you know, be prepared. If you need to get your finger in the table of contents, no shame. I understand. Do that. All right, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, and, uh, verse 9 and 10. This is what Peter writes to the churches that have been in, in what's called the diaspora. Because of the persecution, the Christians had scattered, and they're now outside of Israel, outside of the area they're familiar with, and, and, and Peter writes to them. Verse 9, 1 Peter 2. But you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, you need to know this, what Peter, who Peter is writing to, mostly Gentiles. They were not Jews. They were mostly Gentiles. And, and what's interesting, if you know your Bible, some of what Peter says should sound familiar, because Peter is pulling from Exodus 19. Peter is pulling from Deuteronomy 7, where God says to the Jews, you are a chosen nation. You're my royal priesthood. You are going to proclaim my excellencies. And now, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter is applying those same titles to all these Gentiles who had come to faith in Jesus Christ and saying, God has done the same thing to you. That's what he means when he says, you used to not be a people, now you are. You used to not have mercy, now you do. And you as a people have a point. So let me say something that may, may seem very controversial, but it's really important. Because I, like you, have grown up in the cultural air that, that we all breathe, and I, like you, get shaped by the, the, the rank autonomy and individualism of the church age we live in. So you need to hear this. Christianity is not about how you have invited Jesus into your heart, but rather Christianity is about how God, through Christ, invited you into his family. That's a radical distinction, friends. Let me say that again because we, you may disagree with it. 
Because doesn't Revelation 3.20, doesn't Jesus say, I, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you open the door, I'll come in and sup with you. If you've been in our study of Revelation, you know that's not what that means. Because Jesus was already talking to Christians, right? So you know what that means and doesn't mean. But how often we have thought Christianity is about me inviting Jesus into my heart. It's about what I did. No. Christianity is about what God did in inviting you through the work of Christ into his family. Listen to what Big John has to say. Oh, oh, there was a wonderful picture of John Stott. It's not there. Anyway, one of our chief evangelical blind spots has been to overlook the central importance of the church. We tend to proclaim individual salvation without moving on to the saved community. We emphasize that Christ died for us to redeem us from all iniquity, he's quoting Titus 2.14 here, rather than to purify himself a people of his own. We think of ourselves more as Christians than as churchmen, and our message is more good news of a new life than of a new society. Now, just to show you how strong our, our filters are going, the activists in the room are saying, see, I'm right. We're supposed to be building a new society here. You pietists totally got it wrong. It's all about me, me, me. No, a new society. Let me temper that because that's not what John Stott's referring to. He's referring to the idea of a new society that God is creating in the people of God called the church. Because you hear this so clearly in Ephesians. I want you to listen or see the overwhelming use of the plural pronoun that Paul writes to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 1. Look at what Paul says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So activists, right? You gotta tone it down. He's talking about this new work, this new people. But I also want to say to the pietists, I, I, I don't, don't get me wrong here, because our conversion to Christ is a personal thing. Right? See, this is the beauty of Christianity. There, there's so many paradoxes to it. That we can easily crash in one dish or the other. Our conversion is a very personal thing. My point in bringing this up is to help you understand the nuance that just because something is a personal thing, it doesn't follow that it's a private thing. There's a difference there. Just because something's personal, it doesn't follow from that that it's private. And in our culture, that's another one of our idols, right? This me, privacy, it's my life. I get to do what I want to do. No one can tell me. You're not the boss of me. I hear it all the time. I was driving in the car with my daughter, and we are singing um, one of their songs. I think it was from The Greatest Showman or something like that. And, and the line between Zac Efron and Zendaya is, no one can tell us who we should be. It's all about you and me. And I stopped the radio and said, babe, sweetie, you got to just understand something here. God can tell you who you should be, Right? And she's like, by this time she gets it. She's like, Dad, are we going to do this again? <laughs> but it's everywhere. They can't tell me who we should be. Oh, that stuff everywhere. But that's not the reality. My life, it is a personal thing. My walk with God, it's a personal thing. But a Christian is both a personal and a corporate reality. It's not one or the other. It's both. 
And friends, if, if you interact with people who are Christians or say that they're Christians, and they're kind of doing their own, and you see this whether it's Christian or non-Christian, you actually see this in our culture, there's just a lot of kind of self-styled religion and, and spirituality out there, but if we're being really honest, a lot of it's very shallow and very self-absorbed, right? And, but on the other hand, I can see their point because when you look at a lot of institutionalized religion, it, it could seem cold and impersonal. So, so we get that, but the, 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 what I'm trying to communicate is that Christianity, Christianity offers something radically different that neither one of those options provide because neither one of those options are satisfactory. Christianity, biblically understood, provides what they're looking for in these other self-styled religions or institutionalized religions but can't find. Biblical Christianity offers the personal warmth of that relationship and the corporate solidarity and strength of community, and it does not make too much or too little of the individual in, in between. But so much of our culture goes back and forth and back and forth, and we lose the balance. So while our conversion to Christ is intensely personal, and it is, it is intensely personal, never do we see Christianity described in the Bible as an individual's journey with Christ. You don't see that kind of language. If anything, from the very beginning of the church, and we're not going to take my word for it, we're going to read the text, we see a people gathered together, committed to Jesus Christ, the gospel, and the community that it makes. So let's look at the very first historian, Dr. Luke. Look, go to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, if you're using our Pew Bible, that's page 857. Acts chapter 2, page 857 in the Pew Bible. Acts chapter 2, some of you know which verses I'm going to read. Listen to the strong sense of togetherness that we see here. Acts 2.42. And they, speaking of the people who were becoming Christians, and it wasn't just Jews or Greeks, it was all kinds of people. They devoted themselves, devoted themselves to what? The apostles teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Okay, so you activists... Yeah, you're like, ah, see, socialism, that's right there in the Bible. They were communists, they were socialists. Pull back, right? You're, you're bringing your view to the text. You see how we do this very easily. Now, some of you, you're like, I would not have thought that at all because you're a capitalist and you don't read that that way, right? But if we're being honest, isn't what we're seeing here some kind of sounds like socialism, right? They all had things in common. My point is... We are so much like a doctrinalist or a pietist or an activist. You can't not read scripture but through your lens. And if you're not one of those others, you don't even see that. But the reality, there's bits of all of it woven all through the scriptures. Because in some sense, all of these things are there. My point simply is this. And we can explain, I explain why this is not an argument for socialism because it's not. We can have that conversation later. My point is, these Christians... They were saved to a people, a community that cared for each other, a community that gave for one another. 
But it wasn't just all kind of rainbows and unicorns. They were a chosen race, a priesthood that had a purpose, a nation that had to do something, and that was to proclaim the excellencies of God in this world, to bring light to the darkness. They were saved to a people, but also they were saved for a people. And the best way I can unpack this in the remaining time is just simply discuss briefly uh, the three metaphors that I find in the Bible. There are more metaphors we could look at, but this is just the three I'm going to talk about this morning. And if you're in our membership class, we'll unpack these a little bit more this weekend. And so it's probably the best metaphor, the most well-known metaphor, is the metaphor of Christians being the body of Christ. Right? So go with me to the book of Romans. That's just right after Acts, so just flip over one book of the Bible to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, I want you to hear from Paul's writing. Starting in verse 12. Oh, excuse me, I'm sorry. Romans 12, starting in verse 3, my mistake. 3 to 5. So this is what Paul writes. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Oh, there, we're getting to that issue of identity again, aren't we? How, how are you thinking about yourself? Are you just beating yourself down? You don't feel like you're worthy enough to be in church? You think you're too good for the church and they're all self-righteous, right? And they're all that way. Paul says, no, no, no. Think rightly about yourself, right? But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Flip over to 1 Corinthians. It's just the next book to the right, just probably two pages to the right. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Keeping what Paul just said in Romans in mind, this is what Paul says to the Corinthians. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. Again, ethnic distinctions, economic distinctions. We were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Friends, here's the things I want you to focus in on. Did you notice between Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 the constant interplay of the one and the many? In both of these chapters, Paul makes the point that we were made to work together. Paul's making the point that though we are different, we work together. We don't work independently from one another. We work interrelatedly with each other in the purposes of God. To put it bluntly, we are collectively the body of Christ, not individually. And the reason I say that is because we are so shaped by our individualism. We can't get away from it. One perfect example is our view of communion. Now, I'll be honest, some of you have been, if you pay attention, you've been tracking my theological progression on my view of communion. It began in 2020 with our Good Friday service during our COVID thing. I talked about why I wanted to do communion live. And the point I'm making is that 
like many of you, I kind of thought communion was this really cool, special, spiritual thing that Christians did, right? And we, so, you know, like at weddings, I did communion at my wedding. As a youth pastor, I'd always have my, my youth group do communion, but to make it fun, because I was a youth pastor, I called the hostess bakery in town and had them deliver cupcakes and ho-hos, and, and that was the bread that we had, you know, and it, it was cool that there was a pile of cupcakes and ho-hos that was supposed to be our communion bread, but my point is, my view of communion is morphing, changing, growing. My latest development is the realization that communion is not something we take individually. It's not something I take with my small group. It's not even something I take with my family. And why is that? Because as I read scripture, Paul made very clear, very clear in, in, in 1 Corinthians 11 where we learn much about communion. If you go with a pen, the repeated phrase, when the church gathers... The church, when the assembly gathers, you do this. When the church gathers, you do this. As a matter of fact, he was rebuking them because they were starting to partake of the Lord's Supper before everyone got there. And Paul said, that's not how this works. The Supper of the Lord is to identify the solidarity. Though we are many, we are one in Christ. It wasn't intended for a cool spiritual thing that Christians do on their own. But a special time. When the body gathers to remember that though we are many, we are one, and here we are. As a matter of fact, even Jesus, doesn't he say, what we do tonight, the 12 disciples who represented the new people of God, we talked about that in our Mark series, he says, I'm not doing this again. Until when? Until we all are gathered. Now, are you in sin because you did communion at your wedding? No, right? Are, are, are you in sin because you do it with your small group? No, I'm just showing you that I had not realized how influenced I was by this individual mentality in the church that I was missing when it literally was saying, when the church gathers, because that's what you are. You're not individuals like-minded. You are a people, a body, interrelated. You don't detach from one another I get my finger detached from my body. I would feel it. I wouldn't say, oh, that's just a little, my pinky. No big deal. That's what we are. Friends, is that how you view the church? And, and by the way, I'm talking about the local church, right? There are two distinctions. There's a spiritual universal church, but that spiritual universal church is made manifest in local visible churches. We are the body of Christ. There's so much more to say, but I, I got to get going because I may be running late today. But I can pull in from 15 minutes from last week that I gave you free, right? So, okay, second metaphor, um, building, the building. All throughout the New Testament, you can look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21 and following, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, if, as a matter of fact, in 1 Peter 2, the chapter we started with in verse 5, Peter says, you are living stones. He literally calls the Christians living stones in a spiritual house. So friends, if the church is considered God's building, then what is it made of? It's made of Christians. Each with a purpose. Each with a place. Christians, friends, we are the bricks. We're like we're the stones. We're, we, we're like bricks. We are resting and relying on all the bricks below us. And giving strength and support to all the bricks above us. And every one of us has a place. Friends, if we are a living a building, a, a temple, and we're all living stones being built by God, I don't think he's going to have a couple pieces laying around. He's not like so many men like me. When we work on our cars, we have extra pieces, right? And the wife says, these are probably important. Shouldn't they go back in the car? And you go, I guess, right? That's not how God builds. Every single one of us, if you are a Christian, has a place 
and a role to take in the building up of this building. Now, some of you may, because I want to address a reality that some of you may feel like, well, there, there is no place for me in ministry. And so often I hear Christians say that and they wander away. And if that might be you feeling like, well, I don't have a place. I don't have a role. I just show up. There might be two things that are causing you to think incorrectly that, that are derailing your ministry and getting the most out of the local church. So here's number one. You may be thinking of ministry as more task-oriented than people-oriented. You may be thinking of ministry as more uh, related to objects. And so what I mean by that, and to a degree, they're totally necessary, right? Usher's ministry, music ministry, kids ministry, or, you know, you got your guitar ministry or surf ministry. We have these ministry to things, right? Very important, but the thing I'm getting at is along that thinking, it follows that, well, if they don't need me in kids' ministry and there's no spot for me in like the surfing ministry and, and they don't need me in usher's ministry, then, then there's nothing for me to do. There's no ministry for me. You see how that works, right? And, and, and those ministries are really important, but there's a kind of limited cap on that, right? Because we can't let everyone in usher ministry, right? Can you know how creepy that would be? Like if, if 10 people greeted you as an usher, hi, hi, welcome, welcome, have a bulletin, have a seat. I mean, that, there's a kind of built-in cap to task-oriented ministry. But when you read the New Testament, ministry is primarily towards people to help them follow Jesus. Ministry, task-oriented ministry are necessary results of a corporate function, but that's not primarily what ministry is, and sometimes we confuse them. When you understand that ministry is helping other people just be more like Jesus, there's no built-in cap to that. The sky is the limit in this church and any other church as well. And friends, if you're that person who feels like, well, I, I, there's no ministry for me because the kids' ministry is uh, you know, supplied and usher ministry is full, you feel like, well, there's no ministry, I'll wait till the ministry comes up. That's not what's going on. Ministry, there, there is an endless need for you to be ministering here. I could throw a rock into this room and I would hit somebody who needs ministry, your ministry maybe. You think, well, how do I do that? It can be something as simple as you meet once a week, read the Gospel of Mark over at Starbucks. What's God showing you? What, what are we learning about God, each other, the church, his purposes, just praying for one another? Or ministry can simply be grabbing, you know, we print these occasionally. It's our membership roster. And it's not fancy. There's no pictures. All it is is names, so it's small, so it fits in my Bible. And every week I pull this out and I pray. And just looking at names reminds me of prayer requests. did that this morning. It could be a, that, that could be a ministry you could do, Right? It's cheap. It's not fancy. We, we intentionally don't do photo directories because those are expensive. We print these three, four times a year. Every time we receive members or release members, we want it updated so you can pray for each other. Ministry can be very intentional. It can be very informal. It could be joining, bringing a young Christian to a disciple makers class. Do you know, do you need to know how to pray, right? There's a prayer class that's starting. If your prayer life needs to grow, go to the prayer class. Do you need to know how to interpret scripture? Does your friend need to know? You might know how to interpret scripture, but bring your friend to the disciple makers class to help disciple them. Right now, I think it's right now, uh, David Bonsangi is teaching in Essentials of the Christian Faith. What does it mean to be a Christian for new converts? Are you new in your faith? Are you immature in your faith? Be part of that. Kyle's teaching uh, Six Steps to Loving the Church today, right? Yeah, so he's talking about what I'm talking about, but in a lot better way than I'm doing it, right? There's so many ways to minister to one another, both formal and informal. Guys, just look at the back. Take your bulletin out. 
I know I'm going along, sorry. Look at all the ways you can be ministering and minister, have ministry to other people. Just today, we had two prayer groups. We got an Isaiah Bible study, an Essentials of the Faith, junior high, senior high, six steps to loving your church, confronting injustice, moms of prodigals prayer, and then Monday night, Sarah and Mitch, they're teaching about how to use our finances. Tuesday morning, the women are getting together, mommy and me, and then Tuesday night, we got the young adults getting, and on and on and on. My goodness. There's a lot of ministry to be done. So that's the first thing. Ministry mindset is not task-oriented. It's people-oriented. And here's the second thing. Because it's about people, it just takes time. Friends, ministry takes time because it's about people. It takes time to get to know them. It takes time for them to get to know you. It takes time to build relationships. One or two mistakes people make coming into a church. The person shows up. I got all these gifts. I want to use my gifts. I'm a teacher. Let me teach. You say, well, right now we want to hold off and get to know you. And I've literally had people say, well, I'm a teacher. You're not going to use me. Then you're not letting me use my gifts. This is not a biblical church. I'm out of here. The other extreme is people showing up saying, you all have gifts. I have needs. Use your gifts to meet my needs. Help me, help me, help me. Well, hold on a second. Uh, we just need to know how we can do that well. Well, you're not using your gifts to help me, and so you're on a biblical church. I'm out of here. Happens all the time. Both of those people want to use the church. They don't want to be a part of the church. One wants to use it because they're spiritual. One wants to use it just because they have needs, and that's what we're supposed to do. Both of those are not correct. It takes time to get to know people, to get them to know you. We are a body. We're different, but we work together. We're a building, and every stone has its place. Every brick bears its weight and lends its strength. Final metaphor, got to wrap it up, is that we're a bride. Sorry, I got to fix that. We are a bride the Bible calls the people of God the bride of Christ. And if you've been a Christian for a year, you've probably heard the, the metaphors of the body of Christ and, and, and the temple of the Holy Spirit. But, and you get it intellectually. I think the metaphor of being the bride of Christ is to stir our affections, not just stimulate our, our intellect. Let me illustrate. Lori and I have good friends, Alan and Molly. And I love Molly, right? I love her. I would, and Lori knows this, I would lay my life down for Molly. I would protect her. I would provide for her. I would care for her. I would do anything for Molly. Why? You're getting a little ner nervous here. You're like, does our pastor have an affection for another woman? No! I would do all that for Molly because Alan is like my son in the faith. He's my boy. I disciple them. I help them become a strong Christian. I love him like a son. And I even married he and Molly together. And because Molly is Alan's greatest treasure, I would give the skin off my back for her because of my affection for him. Now, it's not that Molly's not important, but she's almost irrelevant. Replace Molly with, say, a Julie or a Shauna or a Christy or whatever, and I would do the same. Because my affection and commitment to her is directly linked to my love for the man who cherishes her. You get what I'm saying here? If I or you would do that, and I know some of you would do that for your friends, now that you understand the context. If I would do that for Alan, shouldn't I do that for Jesus? Who his greatest heart's treasure is his bride. How about you? By the way you love God's people, can people see that if you, you love Jesus? Or by the way you treat 
love or despise, ignore, maybe are apathetic to God's people, maybe your profession is betraying that, in fact, it's just a spiritual ego trip. That you don't love Jesus at all because look at the way you treat his most treasured possession. You don't treat her at all. She doesn't exist. Friends, if you were to, be in, if you were to ignore my wife, I, I would have a harsh feeling towards you. If you were to badmouth my wife, I'd punch you in the throat. Right? In love, I'd punch you in the throat. If you mistreated her, ignored her, saw her need and didn't meet it, I would wonder about your professions of loving me. Why would Jesus be different? In answer to the question, what is a Christian? Here's the final where we end up on. Who do Christians think they are? We are people that God has called out of the world to know him, to love him, to proclaim him, to reflect him, to bring about his purposes by being like him in this world. In short, friends, Christians are the church. Next week, now that we've gotten to that point, and I think I've made a good case biblically, Christians are the church. That's our identity. Let's start talking about what it means to be a church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. We want to be a people. Father, help us. We swim in the world of a culture that's about me, myself, and I, the the narcissistic trinity, and we need you to save us from ourselves. That is what the gospel's about. Saving me from my inward focus, how sin makes me look always on myself, whether that's wrong or bad or uh, it could be a good thing, but Lord, I'm just tired of that. I pray, Lord, that you make us tired of that. Help us to love others. You say that that is the second greatest commandment. The first is to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second is to love our neighbors like ourselves. Lord, our neighbors are right here, the members we've covenanted with to do life together with. Help us to play that out practically in our lives together. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.